Philippians 1, beginning at verse 27, here is God's holy and infallible word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And then we're going into chapter 2 now. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." That's our reading this morning. So Ascension Day isn't really today, right? It was this past Thursday. Forty days after Resurrection Day, the first Easter, the Bible tells us that Jesus was taken up into the air in the presence of his disciples. And as we read earlier, they watched until a cloud hid him from their eyes. So the, the question... Uh, that's, that's there in the, in the sermon title is, what does Christ's ascension mean to you? Does Christ's ascension mean anything to you? What does it mean to you? Anything? It doesn't seem to mean much to the world. There's no special day. There's no holiday. I've never found any ascension day sales in stores. There's no presence. Although, right, Easter and Christmas are so commercialized, at least they're still on the world's calendar. But not Ascension Day. Ascension Day really doesn't seem to mean anything to the world, but it should mean something for us. It's a critical event, biblically speaking, and for us as God's people. It happened, Jesus ascended into heaven to take his throne at the right hand of the Father, yes. But it's more than a historical fact many years ago. Going forward from that day, all of God's people now live 
in the atmosphere of the ascension, we might say. Our verses in Philippians lead us to the ascension in verse 9 especially. And without the ascension, none of these words could have been written. They wouldn't have made any sense. And so we can see some of the meaning and the implications of the ascension of Jesus for our lives in these verses. And it, it means first that we are citizens of God's kingdom. We are kingdom citizens. Verse 27 at the beginning of that verse, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And it's hard to see in English, but in the original language of the Bible, Paul is talking about being citizens devoted citizens even. The ascension means Jesus is the king on the throne of heaven. Well, a king has subjects by definition, or he's not really a king. A king has a citizenry, and that's us, his people. We have a sense of what it means to be devoted citizens of a nation. It means we we follow the laws, uh, we respect those in authority and pray for them, uh, we, we want to vote, uh, we participate in different ways that we can. Uh, and we in the United States, we value things like democracy, right, and capitalism, a free market, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, certain rights for all people, men and women, all races, rich or poor. We often talk about uh, the things that are, all the things that are wrong with our country. That's the new normal. That's the environment we live in, and that's the rhetoric from the news. But let's not forget all that is good and all that we have as American citizens. The people of Philippi were proud to belong to their city. They were devoted citizens. That citizenship was very important to them. Philippi was a Roman settlement. The Roman Empire was over that whole Mediterranean region, um, even where Philippia, Philippi was in northern Greece. And Philippi received one of the highest honors possible for a city in the Roman Empire. Its citizens enjoyed all the rights that those in the capital city of Rome and the bigger cities in Italy around Rome enjoyed. Um, and only certain cities got that special designation. The Philippians were very much aware of this and the special privileges that they had as citizens in the Roman Empire. And they would understand what Paul was talking about when he talked about behaving as devoted citizens because they valued that very much in their society, like we value it here in ours. Paul's connecting with something they value in order to remind them and to remind us of our heavenly citizenship. Paul conducted himself as a devoted citizen of God's kingdom. And we're called to be aware of our true citizenship too, living our lives in accordance with the gospel, in accordance with the kingdom 
1 Peter 2, 11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. And that, that's, that's tough. What do, we, what do we do with that as citizens in nations of the world and, and a, a country that we love and are proud of? Well, it, do, it still means that we owe allegiance to our government officials because God has chosen to rule us through our government leaders. So it's not like we pretend we're, we aren't citizens of a country here because we're citizens in Jesus' kingdom. In Philippi, it was right in Philippi that Paul was thrown in jail. And you know what he did? He didn't keep his mouth shut. He appealed to the fact that he was a Roman citizen and had a right to a trial as a Roman citizen. Other pe- not everybody else had that, but he did because he was a Roman citizen. And so they let him go. So he didn't ignore his earthly citizenship. The thing is, we are citizens here, but we don't quite fit. Or we might say we've got another devotion that's greater, it's higher, it's better, and it's more privileged a citizenship, our heavenly citizenship, than any privilege being a a citizen of any nation on earth could give us. Later in Philippians 3, verse 20, Paul reminds these Christians who were so proud of their Roman citizenship that their citizenship is in heaven. Because King Jesus ascended and is reigning on the throne, we are citizens of his kingdom and all that that entails. But what does that mean and entail? And Paul in our verses talks about two things especially, two kingdom characteristics, uh, two characteristics of life lived under our ascended king, Jesus. And the first is suffering. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Suffering uh, came up a bit earlier in Pastor Matthew's congregational prayer. Faith and suffering go hand in glove. Whether it's suffering for righteousness' sake or physical suffering, suffering is not the exception, it's the norm for believers. It's part and parcel of the faith. It shouldn't surprise us if we experience suffering. Sometimes we think that if we're really faithful Christians, if we're doing everything right in our personal lives and and with our family and committed to the church, we're not going to have trials. But that's not true. It's not true at all. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? And he responded with, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. Many, if not most of the Psalms, were born in difficulty. Most of the letters, the epistles, like Philippians, were written in prisons. 
Most of the greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers of all time had to first pass through the fire. John Bunyan, uh, I think it's about the third most widely published and read book after, or maybe second, right after the Bible. Um, He wrote Pilgrim's Progress from Jail. Florence Nightingale, too sick to get out of her bed, reorganized the hospitals of England. Louis Pasteur, the scientist, uh, the biologist, was tireless in his his attack on disease and saved, no doubt, millions and millions of lives because of his work and effort. Even though the last several decades of his life He was half paralyzed after a severe stroke and was always fearing another stroke. During the greater part of his life, I don't know, has anybody heard of American historian Francis Parkman? He suffered so badly with a variety of health problems that he couldn't work for more than five minutes at a time. His eyesight was so bad that Big sections and times of his life, he was, he was blind, basically blind half the time. And then in the little bit of time that he could see, he'd take a few minutes and scrawl a few gigantic words on a manuscript. Yet with those scribbles and by dictating tons of historical detail from memory, he managed to write a hugely respected 20-volume work of history. He wrote in the mid-1800s, so that's probably why he's not a familiar name to us. But Parkman is still considered one of our greatest national historians. Someone once said, sometimes it seems that when God is about to make preeminent use of someone, he puts them through the fire. Paul writes about standing firm, contending for the faith, not being frightened of those who oppose us, and all of this reminds us that while King Jesus is certainly on the throne and reigning, down here we got a battle going on. The battle against sin in our own lives and hearts, the continuing effects of the fall into sin on this world, Satan and his demons not yet finally and once and for all thrown into the lake of fire. We're in a war zone. You don't expect peace and tranquility in battle. It's the exception, times of peace and tranquility. It's not the rule. The psalmist more than once says and asks, why did the wicked have such a nice life while I'm suffering? And it's because struggle and suffering, like Paul experienced, he says that in verse 30, it's a characteristic of life for citizens of the ascended Lord. As we head into chapter 2, there's another characteristic of this life, and it's love. How do we respond to suffering? Well, there are lots of options. We can become resentful of God and or the church. We can get angry. We can feel hopeless. Uh, We can take revenge on people 
who may have caused us pain in life. But Paul says another kingdom characteristic is love and living in love. From verse 6 forward, uh, the words are set off in our Bibles in a special way. And that's because verses 6 through 11, we think, uh, were an early church hymn or a profession of faith. And sometimes, you know, it talks about Jesus being humbled, and sometimes it's called the servant song, and uh, we often summarize the whole thing with, well, what's the theme? It's, it's humility. But I think the main theme is love. And he says earlier in chapter 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same Love, I think that's verse 2. That's the weapon of Christ's kingdom, love. And what love looks like is humility and service and peace, unity of the Spirit, and looking to the interests of others, all this stuff that Paul's talking about. Why I think it's love is because you can talk about humility, but if there's not love there first, you're not going to be the real deal. Being humble without love is a tactic. Being humble without love is a life hack, pretending in order to make yourself look better. But with love, it's what Jesus did, as Paul describes in that song. A description of how our salvation was achieved. The love of God resulting in his son becoming like us, assuming human flesh, and going to death on a cross for our sins. The eternal son's humiliation and then his exaltation for the father's glory and for our salvation. You may have heard about a medieval monk who once announced he would be preaching the next Sunday evening on the love of God. During that service, as the shadows fell and the light ceased to come in through the cathedral windows anymore and the congregation gathering, in the darkness of the altar, the monk lit a candle and he carried it forward to the crucifix. The crucifix, it was a, a Roman Catholic church. First of all, he illumined the crown of thorns with that light. Next, the two wounded hands. Then the marks of the spear wound. And in the hush that had fallen, he blew out the candle and he walked out. A sermon on the love of God. There was nothing else to say. So these two kingdom characteristics, suffering, love, but we might ask, what about me in all of this? I feel like where all this leads to is perhaps a wondering, a questioning, if these are key kingdom citizen characteristics, if devoted citizens of the kingdom undergo suffering, 
and are called to live a life of love, love, am I really a citizen of the heavenly kingdom? Have I truly bowed the knee to King Jesus? Am I a child of God? Because, you know, sometimes when I suffer, I don't handle that very well. Or when someone wrongs me, I don't respond in that loving, humble way. I stick up for myself, and I respond with sharp words and a sharp tone. I get very self-defensive instead of responding with a servant attitude like Jesus and looking to the interests of the other person. Uh, and, and, and you might say, as we've been talking about this, I haven't expected and embraced suffering as part and parcel of my faith. In fact, I've grumbled in suffering and when hard times hit. And I have not always been so loving. I have not always been a team player in the church by being one with Christ and his people in spirit and purpose, as Paul talks about to this church. And more, more than all of that, you know, this loving humility, I sometimes look around me and, and think I'm definitely a, a notch or two above, above these folks, whether it's brothers and sisters in the church or those around me outside the church. With my life, my faith, my blessings, I'm, I'm a little bit superior. And we might say, I'm not sure if love characterizes my life in the way the Bible's describing it as the sacrificial suffering that Jesus demonstrated for us. And, and when it comes down to it, we might say if we're really honest and if we're thinking about this in our heads and with our hearts, rather than just letting words rattle off of us, these words don't describe me very well at all. And that concerns me. So we're celebrating Jesus' ascension into heaven. He's ruling over all things for the church. But am I really a part of it all? Am I a part of this? 2 verse 1 that we kind of have skipped over so far speaks to this, I think. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, whether you've read those words before or heard them today, have you ever wondered those four any, any encouragement, any comfort, any fellowship, any tenderness. What's going on with that? Why does Paul repeat that? I think he's saying, have you ever experienced any of this? Any at all? Have you ever had a moment where you felt God's love in your life? Have you ever had a moment when his word touched you and reached you? Have you ever felt in your heart Oh, I love the Lord so much, and I just want to give my life to him. I want to live for him. 
Have you at any time ever been inspired in worship with God's people? Have you ever at any time been comforted in prayer? Maybe you're wondering about how you've gone through suffering or if you've suffered enough for the Lord. Maybe you're wondering about the extent and quality of the love of God in your life. But Paul seems to be saying, if at any point you've ever felt God's presence, if you'd had any comfort from his love and so on, well, that could only be from the Lord himself. If you've ever experienced anything like that, well, that could only be a supernatural work of God, and that means he is at work in your life. Then you are a child of God. You are a kingdom citizen. And so I want to encourage us, in light of the ascension and what Paul tells us there about our lives, to continue to bow to King Jesus and let that love, that comfort, that compassion, that tenderness, that fellowship with the Spirit that could only have come from Him. Let that all bloom and let it grow more and more in your life. May God give our, our counsel, I think especially of these new elders and deacons, may He give them all as well as us as pastors um, His spirit of grace and power to lead this church in the way of King Jesus, which is the way of suffering, and it's the way of love. And may God give each one of us also the spirit of grace and power of the spirit to be devoted citizens who follow Jesus' way. Certainly, wherever we go, but especially here at Faith CRC, especially here at our home base, we might call. May King Jesus reign. Amen? Let's go to God in our prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven. I pray, oh God, that we might uh, gratefully respond uh, to that invitation and, and to your finished work on the cross and your resurrection and your ascension uh, that makes our entering the kingdom all very possible if we but turn to you and say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to be in your kingdom. Bless us, O oh God, as we exhibit uh, what your word tells us is uh, happens and is common and are characteristics of kingdom citizens, of devoted kingdom citizens, that, that suffering and that love we're called uh, to share, the love of Jesus. And, oh God, assure us uh, when, we, when we wonder, assure us that you are at work in us, and, and oh God, if we've never accepted uh, the invitation to follow Jesus. We never accepted the invitation uh, to become a citizen of your heavenly kingdom. Work in our hearts so that we might do that. Help us, help anyone here who's in that situation. Oh God, to talk to me or Pastor Matthew or an elder or deacon or uh, a trusted uh, Christian mentor or parent or family member and, and be certain 
that they've said yes to you, Jesus. Thank you, O oh God, for your love for us as it's shown in Jesus. O oh Lord Jesus, we exalt you, we praise you for who you are and for all you've done. Fill our church with kingdom citizens. In your name we pray, amen.